Chapter 10 of The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lauren Randall. The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 10 The Count was walking on the ramparts of the castle, involved in thought, when Osbert approached whose lingering step and disappointed air spoke to his heart the rejection of his suit. He told the Count that Mary did not at present feel for him those sentiments of affection which would justify her in accepting his proposals. This information, though it shocked the hopes of the Count, did not entirely destroy them, for he yet believed that time and assiduity might befriend his wishes. While these noblemen were leaning on the walls of the castle, engaged in earnest conversation, they observed on a distant hill a cloud emerging from the verge of the horizon, whose dusky hue glittered with sudden light. In an instant they descried the glance of arms, and a troop of armed men poured in long succession over the hill, and hurried down its side to the plains below. The earl thought he recognized the clan of the baron. It was the baron himself who now advanced at the head of his people, in search of that revenge which had been hitherto denied him, and who, determined on conquest, had brought with him an host which he thought more than sufficient to overwhelm the castle of his enemy. The messenger who had been sent with the challenge had been detained a prisoner by Malcolm, who in the meantime had hastened his preparations to surprise the castle of Othlin. The detention of his servant had awakened the suspicions of the earl, and he had taken precautions to guard against the designs of his enemy. He had summoned his clan to hold themselves in readiness for a sudden attack, and had prepared his castle for the worst emergency. He now sent a messenger to the clan with such orders as he judged expedient, arranged his plans within the walls, and took his station on the ramparts to observe the movements of his enemy. The Count, clad in arms, stood by his side. Alan was posted with a party within the great gate of the castle. The Baron advanced with his people and quickly surrounded the walls. Within all was silent. The castle seemed to repose in security, and the Baron, certain of victory, congratulated himself on the success of the enterprise, when observing the Earl, whose person was concealed in armor, he called to him to surrender himself and his chief to the arms of Malcolm. The earl answered the summons with an arrow from his bow, which, missing the baron, pierced one of his attendants. The archers, who had been planted behind the walls, now discovered themselves, and discharged a shower of arrows. At the same time, every part of the castle appeared thronged with the soldiers of the earl, who hurled on the heads of the astonished besiegers lances and other missile weapons with unceasing rapidity. The alarm bell now rung out the signal to that part of the clan without the walls, and they immediately poured upon the enemy, who, confounded by this unexpected attack, had scarcely time to defend themselves. The clang of arms resounded through the air with the shouts of the victors and the groans of the dying. The fear of the baron, which had principally operated on the minds of his people, was now overcome by surprise and the fear of death, and on the first repulse they deserted from the ranks in great numbers and fled to the distant hills. In vain the baron endeavored to rally his soldiers and keep them to the charge. 
they yielded to a stronger impulse than the menace of their chief, who was now left with less than half his number at the foot of the walls. The baron, to whom cowardice was unknown, disdaining to retreat, continued the attack. At length the gates of the castle were thrown open, and a party issued upon the assailants, headed by the earl and the count, who divided in quest of Malcolm. The count fought in vain, and the search of Osbert was equally fruitless. Their adversary was nowhere to be found. Osbert, apprehensive of his gaining admittance to the castle by stratagem, was returning in haste to the gates, when he received the stroke of a sword upon his shoulder. His armor had broke the force of the blow, and the wound it had given was slight. He turned his sword and, facing his enemy, discovered a soldier of Malcolm's, who attacked him with a desperate courage. The encounter was furious and long. Dexterity and equal valor seemed to animate both the combatants. Alan, who observed from his post the danger of the earl, flew instantly to his assistance. But the crisis of the scene was past ere he arrived. The weapon of Osbert had pierced the side of his adversary, and he fell to the ground. The earl disarmed him, and holding over him his sword, bade him ask his life. "'I have no life to ask,' said Malcolm, whose fainting voice the earl now discovered. "'If I had, tis death only I would accept from you, O cursed—' He would have finished the sentence, but his wound flowed apace, and he fainted with loss of blood. The earl threw down his sword, and calling a party of his people, he committed to them the care of the baron, and ordered them to proceed and seize the castle of Dunbane. Understanding their chief was mortally wounded, the remains of Malcolm's army had fled from the walls. The people of the earl proceeded without interruption, and took possession of the castle without opposition. The wounds of the baron were examined when he reached Dunbane, and a dubious sentence of the event was pronounced. His countenance marked the powerful workings of his mind, which seemed laboring with an unknown evil. He threw his eyes eagerly round the apartment, as if in search of some object which was not present. After several attempts to speak, "'Flatter me not,' said he, with hopes of life. "'It is flitting fast away, but while I have breath to speak, let me see the baroness.' She came, and hanging over his couch in silent horror, received his words. I have injured you, madam. I fear beyond reparation. In these last few moments, let me endeavor to relieve my conscience by discovering to you my guilt and my remorse. The baroness started, fearful of the coming sentence. You had a son. What of my son? You had a son whom my boundless ambition doomed to exile from his parents and his heritage, and who I caused you to believe died in your absence. "'Where is my child?' exclaimed the baroness. "'I know not,' resumed Malcolm. "'I committed him to the care of a man and woman "'who then lived on a remote part of my lands. "'But a few years after they disappeared, "'and I have never heard of them since. "'The boy passed for a foundling "'whom I had saved from perishing. "'One servant only I entrusted with the secret. "'The rest were imposed upon.' Thus far I tell you, madam, to prompt you to inquiry, and to assuage the agonies of a bleeding conscience. I have other deeds. The baroness could hear no more. She was carried insensible from the apartment. Laura, shocked at her condition, was informed of its cause, and filial tenderness watched over her with unwearied attention. 
In the meantime, the Earl, on quitting Malcolm, had returned immediately to the castle, and was the first messenger of that event which would probably avenge the memory of his father, and terminate the distresses of his family. The sight of Osbert and the news he brought revived the Countess and Mary, who had retired during the assault into an inner apartment of the castle for greater security, and who had suffered during that period all the terrors which their situation could inspire. They were soon after joined by the Count and by Alan, whose conduct did not pass unnoticed by the Earl. The cheek of Mary glowed at the relation of this new instance of his worth and it was Alan's sweet reward to observe her emotion. There was a sentiment in the heart of Osbert, which struggled against the pride of birth. He wished to reward the services and the noble spirit of the youth with the virtues of Mary, but the authority of early prejudice silenced the grateful impulse, and swept from his heart the characters of truth. The earl, accompanied by the count, now hastened to the castle of Dunbane, to cheer the baroness and her daughter with their presence. As they approached the castle, the stillness and desolation of the scene bespoke the situation of its lord. His people were entirely dispersed. A few only of his sentinels wandered before the eastern gate, who, having made no opposition, were suffered by the earl's people to remain. Few of the baron's people were to be seen. Those few were unarmed, and appeared the effigies of fallen greatness. As the earl crossed the platform, the remembrance of the past crowded upon his mind the agonies which he had there suffered, the image of death which glared upon his sight, aggravated by the bitter and ignominious circumstances which attended his fate, the figure of Malcolm, mighty in injustice and cruel in power, whose countenance smiling horribly in triumphant revenge, sent to his heart the stroke of anguish. Each circumstance of torture arose to his imagination in the glowing colors of truth. He shuddered as he passed, and the contrast of the present scene touched his heart with the most affecting sentiments. He saw the innate and active power of justice, which pervades all the circumstances, even of this life, like vital principle, and shines through the obscurity of human actions to the virtuous, the pure ray of heaven, to the guilty, the destructive glare of lightning. On inquiring for the baroness, they were told she was in the apartment of Malcolm, whose moment of disillusion was now approaching. The name of the Count was delivered to the Baroness, and overheard by the Baron, who desired to see him. Louisa went out to receive her noble relation, with all the joy which a meeting so desirable and so unlooked for could inspire. On seeing Osbert, her tears flowed fast, and she thanked him for his generous care, in a manner that declared a deep sense of his services. Leaving him, she conducted the Count to Malcolm, who lay on his couch, surrounded with the stillness and horrors of death. He raised his languid head, and discovered a countenance wild and terrific, whose ghastly aspect was overspread with the paleness of death. The beauteous Laura, overcome by the scene, hung like a drooping lily over his couch, dropping fast her tears. "'My lord,' said Malcolm, in a low tone, "'you see before you a wretch.' anxious to relieve the agony of a guilty mind. My vices have destroyed the peace of this lady, have robbed her of a son, but she will disclose to you the secret guilt, which I have now no time to tell. I have for some years received, as you now well know, the income of those foreign lands which are her due, 
as a small reparation for the injuries she has sustained. I bequeath to her all the possessions which I lawfully inherit, and resign her into your protection. To ask oblivion of the past of you, madam, and of you, my lord, is what I dare not do. Yet it would be some consolation to my departing spirit to be assured of your forgiveness. The baroness was too much affected to reply, but by a look of assent. The count assured him of forgiveness, and besought him to compose his mind for his approaching fate. Composure, my lord, is not for me. My life has been marked with vice, and my death with the bitterness of fruitless remorse. I have understood virtue, but I have loved vice. I do not now lament that I am punished, but that I have deserved punishment. The baron sunk on his couch, and in a few moments after expired in a strong sigh. Thus terminated the life of a man, whose understanding might have reached the happiness of virtue, but whose actions displayed the features of vice. From this melancholy scene, the baroness, with the count and Laura, retired to her apartment, where the earl awaited their return with anxious solicitude. The sternness of justice for a moment relaxed when he heard of Malcolm's death. His heart would have sighed with compassion had not the remembrance of his father crossed his mind and checked the impulse. I can now, madam, said he, addressing the baroness, restore you a part of those possessions which were once your lord's, and which ought to have been the inheritance of your son. This castle from henceforth is yours. I resign it to its lawful owner. The baroness was overcome with the remembrance of his services, and could scarcely thank him but with her tears. The servant, whom the baron had mentioned as the confidant of his iniquities, was sent for, and interrogated concerning the infant he had charge of. From him, however, little comfort was received, for he could only tell that he had conveyed the child, by the orders of his master, to a cottage on the furthest borders of his estates, where he had delivered it to the care of a woman, who there lived with her husband. These people received at the same time a sum of money for its support, with a promise of future supplies. For some years he had been punctual in the payment of the sums entrusted to him by the baron, but at length he yielded to the temptation of withholding them for his own use, and on inquiring for the people some years later, he found they were gone from the place. The conditions of the baroness's pardon to the man depended on his endeavors to repair the injury he had promoted, by a strict search for the people to whom he had committed her child. She now consulted with her friends on the best means to be pursued in this business, and immediately sent off messengers to different parts of the country to gather information. The baroness was now released from oppression and imprisonment. She was reinstated in her ancient possessions, to which were added all the hereditary lands of Malcolm. Together with his personal fortune, she was surrounded by those whom she most loved, and in the midst of a people who loved her. Yet the consequence of the baron's guilt had left in her heart one drop of gall which embittered each source of happiness, and made her life melancholy and painful. The count was now her visitor. She was much consoled by his presence, and Laura's hours were often enlivened by the conversation of the earl, to whom her heart was tenderly attached, and whose frequent visits to the castle were devoted to love and her. The felicity of Matilda now appeared as perfect and as permanent as is consistent with the nature of sublunary things. 
justice was done to the memory of her lord and her beloved son was spared to bless the evening of her days the father of laura had ever been friendly to the house of Othlin, and her delicacy felt no repugnance to the union which osbert solicited but her happiness whatever it might appear was incomplete she saw the settled melancholy of mary for love still corroded her heart and notwithstanding her efforts shaded her countenance the countess wished to produce those nuptials with the count which she thought would re-establish the peace of her child and ensure her future felicity she omitted no opportunity of pressing his suit which she managed with a delicacy that rendered it less painful to mary whose words however were few in reply and who could seldom bear that the subject should ever be long continued her settled aversion to the addresses of the count at length baffled the expectations of matilda and showed her the fallacy of her efforts she thought it improper to suffer the count any longer to nourish in his heart a vain hope and she reluctantly commissioned the earl to undeceive him on this point with the baroness month after month still elapsed in fruitless search of her son the people with whom he had been placed were nowhere to be found and no track was discovered which might lead to the truth the distress of the baroness can only be imagined she resigned herself in calm despair to mourn in silence the easy confidence which had entrusted her child to the care of those who had betrayed him though happiness was denied her she was unwilling to withhold it from those whom it awaited and at length yielded to the entreaties of the earl and became its advocate with laura for the nuptials which were to unite their fate the earl introduced the countess and mary to the castle of dunbain similarity of sentiment and disposition united matilda and the baroness in a lasting friendship mary and laura were not less pleased with each other the dejection of the count at sight of mary declared the ardor of his passion and would have awakened in her breast something more than compassion had not her heart been preoccupied allan who could think of mary only wandered through the castle of Othlin, a solitary being who fondly haunts the spot where his happiness lies buried his prudence formed resolutions which his passion as quickly broke and cheated by love though followed by despair he delayed his departure from day to day and the illusion of yesterday continued to be the illusion of the morrow the earl attached to his virtues and grateful for his services would have bestowed on him every honor but that alone which could give him happiness and which his pride would have suffered him to accept yet the honors which he refused he refused with a grace so modest as to conciliate kindness rather than wound generosity in a gallery on the north side of the castle which was filled with pictures of the family hung a portrait of mary she was drawn in the dress which she wore on the day of the festival when she was led by the earl into the hall and presented as the partner of allan the likeness was striking and expressive of all the winning grace of the original as often as allan could steal from observation he retired to this gallery to contemplate the portrait of her who was ever present to his imagination here he could breathe that sigh which her presence restrained and shed those tears which her presence forbade to flow as he stood one day in this place wrapped in melancholy musing his ear was struck with the notes of sweet music they seemed to issue from the bottom of the gallery the instrument was touched with an exquisite expression 
and in a voice whose tones floated on the air in soft undulations. He distinguished the following words, which he remembered to be an ode composed by the earl, and presented to Mary, who had set it to music the day before. Morning, darkness, through thy chilling glooms, weakly trembles twilight gray. Twilight fades and morning comes, and melts thy shadows swift away. She comes in her ethereal car, involved in many a varying hue, and throw the azure shoots afar, spirit, light, and life anew. Her breath revives the drooping flowers, her ray dissolves the dews of night, recalls the sprightly moving hours, and the green scene unveils in light. Hers the fresh gale that wanders wild, o'er mountain top and dewy glade, and fondly steals the breath, beguiled of every flower in every shade. Mother of roses, bright aurora, hail! Thee shall the chorus of the hours salute, and song of early birds from every vale, and blithesome horn and fragrant zephyr mute. And oft as rising o'er the plain, thou and thy roseate nymphs appear, this simple song and choral strain from rapturing bards shall meet thine ear. Chorus, dance ye lightly, lightly on, tis the bold lark through the air, hails your beauties with his song, lightly, lightly, fleeting fair. Entranced in the sweet sounds, he had proceeded some steps down the gallery. When the music ceased, he stopped. After a short pause, it returned, and as he advanced, he distinguished these words sung in a low voice, mournfully sweet. In solitude I mourn thy reign, ah, youth beloved, but loved in vain. The voice was broken and lost in sobs, the chords of the lute were wildly struck, and in a few moments silence ensued. He stepped on towards the spot whence the sounds had proceeded and through a door which was left open, he discovered Mary, hanging over her lute, dissolved in tears. He stood for some moments absorbed in mute admiration, and unobserved by Mary, who was lost in her tears, till a sigh which escaped him recalled her to reality. She raised her eyes and beheld the object of her secret sorrows. She arose in confusion. The blush on her cheek betrayed her heart. She was retiring in haste from Alan, who remained at the entrance of the room, the statue of despair, when she was intercepted by the earl, who entered by the door she was opening. Her eyes were red with weeping. He glanced on her a look of surprise and displeasure, and passed on to the gallery followed by Alan, who was now awakened from his trance. "'From you, Alan,' said the earl, in a tone of displeasure, "'I expected other conduct.' On your word I relied, and your word has deceived me. Hear me, my lord, returned the youth. Your confidence I have never abused. Hear me. I have now no time for parley, replied Osbert. My moments are precious. Some future hour of leisure may suffice. So saying, he walked away with an abrupt haughtiness which touched the soul of Alan, who disdained to pursue him with further explanation. He was now completely wretched. The same accident which had unveiled to him the heart of Mary, and the full extent of that happiness which fate withheld, confirmed him in despair. The same accident had exposed the delicacy of her he loved to a cruel shock, and had subjected his honor to suspicion, and to a severe rebuke from him by whom it was his pride to be respected, 
and for whose safety he had suffered imprisonment and encountered death. Mary had quitted the closet distressed and perplexed. She perceived the mistake of the earl, and it shocked her. She wished to undeceive him, but he was gone to the castle of Dunbain to pay one of those visits which were soon to conclude in the nuptials, and whence he did not return till evening. The scene which he had witnessed in the morning involved him in tumult of distress. He considered the mutual passion which filled the bosom of his sister and Alan. He had surprised them in a solitary apartment. He had observed the tender and melancholy air of Alan, and the tears and confusion of Mary and he at first did not hesitate to believe that the interview had been appointed. In the heat of his displeasure, he had rejected the explanation of Alan with a haughty resentment, which the late scene alone could have excited, and which the delusion it had occasioned alone could excuse. Cooler consideration, however, brought to his mind the delicacy and the amiable pride of Mary, and the integrity of Alan, and he accused himself of a too hasty decision. The zealous services of Alan came to his heart. He repented that he had treated him so rigorously, and on his return inquired for him that he might hear an explanation, and that he might soften the asperity of his former behavior. End of chapter 10